Welcome to Living the Questions, a podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Cheyenne. Thank you for joining us. Here on Living the Questions, we wrestle. We wrestle with life's dilemmas, we wrestle with current events, and we wrestle with what it means to live lives of integrity. We hope that you find some community, some comfort, and some hope in this time together. To learn more about our congregation, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. Welcome to this week's podcast. Just a couple of announcements before we dive into the rest of our work for the day. Uh, What would church be without announcements indeed? So the first is that uh, we are going to not have a podcast next week, the podcast that would normally come out on the 20th. Uh, But instead, the following week, we are going to have a very special episode that you can help create. We are going to have a gratitude episode. With everything in our lives and our world right now, we are going to take an opportunity to pause and just say what we're grateful for, to connect with the gratitude in our own heart and uh, to connect with the gratitude in the hearts of the, the people in our community. So if you have something you are grateful for and you want to submit it as part of our special gratitude episode, you can uh, go to anchor.fm slash Cheyenne and leave us a message and it'll let you record it on your with the microphone on your laptop or on your smartphone and you can leave us a message and you might be in our next podcast. And then in December we are going to have a series of kind of spiritual practice-focused podcasts and episodes in December so that uh, if you just need a quick like 10 or 15-minute opportunity to unplug and engage your heart and your spirit or breathe or things like that, that in December there will be weekly opportunities to do that. And then In January, we will be back with more of all your favorite usual podcast uh, episodes and content and all that kind of good stuff. So those announcements being said, our question for this week is, how do we equip ourselves and future generations to be healers of our people and our planet? How do we equip ourselves and future generations to be healers of our people and our planet? It's certainly a big question, but I believe that Unitarian Universalism and our own community right here have some wisdom to offer us as we wrestle with it. Let's get started. So, When I think about how this question, this question about how we can be equipping ourselves and future generations to be healers of both our people and our planet, um, I think a lot about the youth turnout that we saw in this election that is maybe over, but maybe still ongoing. Democracy. It's a process. So uh, 
And when, you know, pundits and other folks talk about the youth vote, they are typically talking about voters who are under 30, uh, so 18 to 29. And this youth vote gets a lot of play, especially in the primaries, Um, you know, thinking about, right, like, who are the youth going for? Who are youth going to turn out for? Who can get the youth to turn out? All that kind of stuff. I will say I definitely went to a Barack Obama rally on my college campus in uh, uh, 2007. So, and I think that there are lots of other people who, you know, had those kind of political rally experiences. Um, And uh, this was a really different and weird election year, Uh, you know, white nationalism was blatantly on the ballot in a way that it has not really been um, to that extent in our country. And um, we're in the middle of a pandemic and the economy is obviously not working for everyone right now. And um, lots of folks in that 18 to 29 year old bracket were not on college campuses or in school, in person, um, and didn't have access, you know, to those kind of uh, voter drive initiatives that they sometimes have um, in in person schooling, and so, and yet, um, the youth vote turned out it's sort of how the youth vote usually turns out, which is that it tends to swing uh, more liberal than conservative, though the same divisions around race and gender in terms of people's political affiliation and who they voted for for president, right? Those same differences show up in the youth vote, just like they do in older portions of the electorate. So I think the first thing, thinking about that question of how do we equip ourselves and future generations to be healers, is to not assume that just because somebody is young, that they are somehow impervious to the fear and the fear mongering and the white nationalism that is so prevalent in our country right now. I remember one time I was guest preaching. Um, I was in seminary and we were living in Baltimore at the time and I was guest preaching down in a congregation in suburban Virginia. And um, it was during the riots in Baltimore after the uh, murder of Freddie Gray in police custody. And, um, you know, right before the service started, a woman came up to me and, you know, she's sort of an older white woman and she took my hand and just sort of patted it and then looked at me and was just like, I can't wait for my generation to die so your generation can fix everything. And I think I, I, I am rarely left in a situation where I truly don't know what to say. And that was one of those encounters where I truly did not know what to say. I think I probably said something like, oh, (laughs) very articulate like that. Um, But what that interaction and these, you know, results from the young electorate show us is that um, somebody just being young does not mean that they're necessarily going to fix the problem. Right, that we need to figure out how to engage young people 
in the same conversations that we're engaging everyone in. And we need to come to them differently based on, you know, sort of where people are in their stage of life, but that there's no, there's no magic coming in the next generation that will somehow mystically undo all of the problems. And I will say that I think a place that I see hope and possibility in some of the the youth vote numbers is that the state that had the highest share of youth vote in this election was Georgia, our friend Georgia. And in our friend Georgia, site of two upcoming Senate runoff elections, right, in our friend Georgia, there were massive turnout efforts just totally massive turnout efforts by activists, you know, with sort of national name recognition like Stacey Abrams, as well as tons of other black women and black youth organizing in that state on the heels of, um, on the heels of the Black Lives Matter movement and on the heels of uh, Stacey Abrams 2018 loss in the race for governor, right? People doing really, really long haul, intensive turnout organizing. And that the result is that Georgia had the highest share of youth vote out of its electorate, 21%. And so I think what this question can help us understand about these youth vote results is that we need to be equipping each other to be healers and that the lessons of previous generations, right, the lessons of, you know, my beloved community members who were in the streets in the 60s, and the lessons of, you know, Gen X activists like Stacey Abrams, and the lessons of, you know, millennials, and the lessons that Gen Z is currently learning, and, right, that, that we need to be sharing those lessons, rather than what I think sometimes happens, which is that we leave each generation to learn it for themselves, right? Believing that somehow if we don't pass along the lessons that we learned from our own mistakes, that we somehow will, you know, they'll be untainted and they will magically fix it. But there's no magical fix. We need to share our lessons with each other. That's how we're going to make a difference. To ground ourselves in our Unitarian Universalist history and values and theology, I often take us back in time to some piece of our history, or we talk about one of our principles or some other dimension of our theology and beliefs, the ways that we are together in community. But today, I want to talk about um, our current amazing heroes of Unitarian Universalism or some current heroes of Unitarian Universalism, or maybe a better way to put it is people who are actively making history as Unitarian Universalists. Today, I want to talk about young Unitarian Universalist climate activists. And, you know, Unitarian Universalists have been involved in 
work around climate and around environmental justice for a long time. Uh, And currently, there are a number of Unitarian Universalist youth across this country who are doing really, really pivotal, amazing work around climate. And um, they've been profiled and stuff, especially around the um, climate strikes that took place in spring of 2019, um, and then around sort of the big global climate strike that took place in September of 2019. And um, they're really, really amazing. They're really amazing, right? Unitarian Universalist youth like Charlotte Stewart Tilly, who's an eighth grader at the UU Church of Tallahassee, although I suppose she's probably now a ninth grader or even a 10th grader. Oh, my goodness. Youth keep aging. Why do they do that to me? Um, Who did work around a climate strike locally. Folks like Asha Pruitt at First Unitarian in Salt Lake. I will say especially folks like Levi Dreheim. Uh, Levi is one of 21 youth plaintiffs in Juliana versus the United States, a legal action um, launched against the U.S. government around in the government's inaction on climate change. And um, so there are all these amazing Unitarian Universalist youth who are out here working to to make a difference. You know, I think that there are a couple of lessons that we can take from these kind of current history makers and Unitarian Universalism as we think about what it's going to take to really um, equip ourselves to be healers. And one is a quote from Charlotte Stewart Tilly. And, you know, she says that it's kind of hurtful when adults tell her, you know, quote, your generation is going to change the world, having the pressure of saving the entire world, no matter how nicely and sweet you put it, is overwhelming. Amen, Charlotte, right? We as adults um, cannot have the idea that somehow um, it's one generation's mission to change the world or to save it from all of the things that have come before. And I hear in that this call from Charlotte to uh, to really right, like get it together and to really understand that we are not just um, Right. As adults, we don't need to just like get out of the way so that youth can lead, though I'm sure that we sometimes need to do that. But we also need to figure out, like, what are we doing to own it? What are we doing to own our action and our part of things? What are we doing um, to make make this work together, to be in solidarity rather than, you know, kind of waiting for youth to come in in their capes and save us all from the mess we've made on this planet. And the other lesson that I want to invite us to hear from these contemporary heroes is uh, from uh, Asha Pruitt. And oftentimes our work on 
climate justice and climate activism and environmental justice, right, our work on those things often stems from our seventh principle. And our seventh principle is that we will, you know, respect the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part, which is absolutely true. Um, and it, and absolutely an important piece of kind of our foundational theology of, you know, the reality that the ecosystems we live in are not human centric. And the reality of climate change and climate collapse and the ways that it disproportionately affects, you know, people who are already marginalized by society's existing systems is that our our urgency around it cannot just come from um, cannot just come from our love of the earth, but it has to come from our love of one another. So this is a quote from Asha Pruitt. The first principle of inherent worth and dignity of every person or every being, that's core to this movement because we have to respect each other and our children and their futures and the land we stand on. Mm, that's, that's so good, right? That it's not just about respecting the inherent worth and dignity of, you know, the people we can see immediately, but respecting the inherent worth and dignity of the gener of generations to come. And respecting the inherent worth and dignity of of all people means respecting people's inherent right to live in a world that you know, is not poisoning them and to live on this earth in a way that allows them to flourish. And, you know, I've named just a couple of dozens and hundreds and thousands of young Unitarian Universalists who are doing incredible climate justice activism and work. I mean, I lift up their voices, you know, like I said, not to um, emphasize that they are going to somehow undo all of the bad things that the rest of us, you know, ye olde people have done to the earth, but rather that they are inviting us to be together in solidarity across generation, among generation, and really find ways to do this work together. So I want to start just by acknowledging um, that I feel like I come to some of these generational questions, right, about, you know, how are we equipping ourselves and future generations to be healers of our people and our planet? Um, and that I come to, like I said, these generational questions in a very in-between place. Uh, so I am 32 which means that uh, by the UUA's definition, I am still a young adult, though I am no longer an emerging adult, which is like 18 to 24. So I'm, I'm still a young adult by the UUA's standards. Um, but I think if you asked any of the uh, like middle school youth in my congregation, like, am I young or old? I, I would, I'm certainly not a youth to them. Uh, and yet, by the general standards of the average age in Unitarian Universalist congregations, I'm pretty spry still. So I come to it from this really kind of in-between place. 
Um, and sometimes I feel old in Unitarian Universalism uh, just because I have been Unitarian Universalist for my whole life. Uh, and so, and I've been involved in lots of congregations and denominational things. And so sometimes I can feel like I've been to a lot of meetings. I've seen a lot of things. Um, and so from that place of in-betweenness, I want to offer a story. Congregational meetings are curious things. They are old-timey, marvelous examples of democracy. We gather in sanctuaries and parish halls and all kinds of different rooms in our church buildings. And some of them have pews, and some of them have uncomfortable folding chairs, and some of them are old, and some of them are newer and have, you know, deeply flattering fluorescent lighting. But in each of them, we gather as people to talk about what matters to us and to figure out how we can make decisions about the things that we care about. And this congregational meeting that I'm thinking of and that I want to tell you about uh, took place off-season. Ooh, and you know when you're having an off-season congregational meeting, right? When it's not just like the one that you had, the same one you have every year at forever and ever, amen, right? When you have an off-season congregational meeting, it usually means that something spicy is happening. And in this case, the spicy thing that was happening was that my church had run out of space. We'd run out of space. We had a beautiful historic building. We had soaring stained glass windows. We had a beautiful organ. We had the best church basement of all time. Oh my goodness. Let me tell you about all the things I know about all the very best, all the very best uh, hide-and-go-seek and sardines uh, hiding spots in my church basement. I, yeah, I know all the best spots. And our congregation was getting a little too big for this building. But the thing about historic church buildings is that they're often kind of uh, hemmed in on all sides. And so there wasn't really anywhere for the church building to go, right? We couldn't, like, put an add-on or, you know, just expand or anything like that. So the church was trying to figure out what to do. And uh, in the hullabaloo of trying to figure out what to do, it was the specter was raised that the youth group could have its own space, its own space. Oh, my goodness. And did we ever start dreaming together? I was uh, a freshman in high school at the time, and our youth group was um, a motley crew, like many groups of high school youth. Um, and so we started dreaming and scheming about what we were going to do if we had our own space. And oh my goodness, it would be so amazing. And we would not have to take the beanbags out of their beanbag storage space and move them into the meeting space and then back to the beanbag storage space. The beanbags could just be in the youth room at all times. Oh my goodness, what a revelation. And so those of us who had been through the coming of age program in our congregation knew that this was our moment, 
that because we had been through coming of age, we were eligible to become voting members of the congregation. And so in something that was, you know, the church equivalent of a voter registration drive, our youth group leaders helped a bunch of us, you know, sign the book and become voting eligible. Because it turns out that the office space we had been renting for the church as sort of our expansion wasn't going to work out anymore. And so it was time to have this off-season congregational meeting and consider purchasing. Purchasing what would uh, come to be called the, the annex. Ooh, yes. And so we did our book signing, we got together, we, you know, talked about as a youth group, you know, how can we help advocate for the purchase and how can we, you know, help our church grow and how can we let people know about what's important to us as youth. And uh, so we all get ready to go to this congregational meeting and we kind of all sit together at the back. I feel like that's, you know, those are like those were like always powerful voting blocks in congregational life, right? Like the the groups of people who like sat together. Because when you sit together, you get to talk about how you're going to vote. Right? You get to confer with one another. You get to talk about what's happening and help interpret the democracy and the democratic process to each other. So we were all sitting together at the back. I'm sure we looked like I said earlier, very motley. But we were all very invested. We were all very invested in the church purchasing Fast Eddie's Pool Hall. Yes, indeed, the property that had come up for sale was Fast Eddie's Pool Hall. And so the heathen Unitarians got together in our sanctuary in front of a pulpit that Olympia Brown had preached from to do the important and holy work of voting on whether or not to purchase Fast Eddie's. The youth group was highly in favor because we were going to get our own space and there was all this like energy in the room. And, right, it was a congregational meeting. People in that meeting brought up things that I thought were totally annoying and off topic and ridiculous. And I'm sure that uh, the eye roll could be heard around the sanctuary from the youth. And people also brought up really, really important questions. Questions that were almost impossible to answer about whether or not we should be purchasing this pool hall for our church annex. Questions about things like, are we going to use environmentally friendly building materials? Can we guarantee that the workers who convert this from a pool hall to a set of church offices and youth room, though frankly they did not have to do much to convert it from a pool hall to a youth room, right? Could we ensure that we were going to pay the workers fairly, that we were going to be just in that? And there... There's no, there was no really good answer to a lot of those, or at least no satisfying answer in the moment. There was a sense that we were going to do our best, but that, that we didn't know how exactly we were going to make this project live up to our values. 
And I remember being torn at the time between feeling like these people were derailing the process, right? That they were, these people were standing between the youth group and our own youth room space. And how dare they? And between rec- between that and recognizing that part of being together was lifting up these really hard questions and that part of figuring out how to live into our values is to bring up the hard questions. That night, as we cast our ballots, and I wondered... I wondered about the people who seemed so vehemently opposed to what we were doing, whether it was because they thought it wasn't the right financial move for the church or because they were concerned about other pieces or because they just, you know, were grumpy about the process, whatever it was. As I watched us all kind of, you know, cast our ballots and I think we did a, we did a written ballot for it which is sometimes congregations typically reserve written ballots for things that they like really want to be able to count and really want to be sure about. So we all wrote our ballots and they collected them in the offering baskets. And as they were being counted by board members at the back of the sanctuary, I wondered... I wondered about how it is that we keep going together. You know, how it is that all of the people who believed that this was the worst financial decision the church had ever made and all of the people who were concerned about other pieces, right? How how was it that we were all going to be the same church at the end of it? And uh, it was, I think, one of, one of the first moments that as a Unitarian Universalist, I really saw, I really saw why our principles matter, why the ways that we say we want to be in community together matter. And it's because you know, we don't have a single authority telling us what to do, right? There's no bishop who steps in and says who's right and who's wrong in a conflict. Um, you know, there's, there's not really an on high voice, not a singular on high voice that's going to step in and say, yes, buy the pool hall or no, don't buy the pool hall. It's, it's up to us. And that means that there's inevitable disagreements about what it means to be in community together. But that the gift of that and the place that I find so much possibility for healing again and again is that we want to be together in a way that doesn't require that we're all on the same page. right? It doesn't require that you know, the finance committee and the youth group and the membership committee and the choir all agree what they should or shouldn't be doing. It requires that 
we are committed to the kind of community where people with different approaches and different backgrounds and different you know, ideas about God can be together, can make decisions, can work for a better world, can work to heal our world. One pool hall at a time. Our congregation eventually purchased Fast Eddie's. There was a pool table in our youth room from that day forth. It was a strange monument, the pool table. It took up a lot of space and uh You know, now as an adult, I recognize that there were probably ways in which having a pool table in the youth room was not the single uh, best use of our space that we could have ever had. And yet to me, that pool table was a reminder. It was a reminder of where that space and that building had come from. That that building was ours. The building was ours. And it was ours because we moved together towards it. Because we had decided to make decisions together. Because we had decided to pool our resources and do something together. That building was the work of the people. Just like church is the work of the people. And if we have any hope of healing of healing ourselves, of healing our communities, of healing this planet. I believe that that work has to begin together. That work has to be ours. That work has to be something that we believe belongs to all of us. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening. Your presence matters to us. Whether you are here in Cheyenne or across the globe, we are grateful that you would spend this time with us. If you'd like to connect more with our community, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. I'm the Reverend Hannah Roberts Vilnave, and on behalf of a grateful community, thank you. We'll see you soon.